To be in charge is not an aggressive statement. It's actually a commitment to ourselves. It's owning who we are. We own our imperfection, they become our assets. We own our vulnerability, it turns into strength. I am Susie Menkes, and you are listening to my podcast, Creative Conversations. As a journalist reporting on the global fashion industry, I want to take you backstage and give you an insight into my world. Listen to my exclusive conversations with creatives, industry leaders, and those whose voices have some of the greatest impact. I think you might find it interesting and maybe intriguing. Go for it. Fear is not an option. Own it. The Secret to Life. This week, I'm talking to Diane von Furstenberg, who has a way of speaking in big, bold statements as she revisits her story. Three generations have now worn the wrap dress she invented to be the sensual, dynamic and appealing woman she wanted to be. A woman in charge, she said, as I learned just how many projects she is still developing today, while the famous dress that started it all has now reached 15 million in number of sales. But there's so much more in The Secret to Life, published by Fiden, a book that sums up her spirit with the title, Own It. To be a feminist and a philanthropist seems like enough already, but DVF, as she is universally known, takes both elements of her life and makes them signs of strength. From supporting American Vice President Kamala Harris to a project to create with her husband Barry Diller, a Statue of Liberty Museum in New York, the designer has followed the words of her mother, who spent 13 months at Auschwitz, and when she recovered, said to her daughter, God saved my life so that I can give you life. Plus, the Diller von Wurstenburg Family Foundation, especially Mr. Diller, is behind a vision of a new floating park and an open theatre called The Little Island, designed by Thomas Heatherwick. Let's hear, in DVF's own voice, what she says in her book, under P for purpose. Here are her words. Purpose has a wider scope than an intention. It is more than a mere goal and bigger than ourselves. Purpose radiates. My purpose is to empower every woman to feel in charge. Just before the world stopped for COVID, You were in Paris and I saw you there and you were there for something very important to be presented with the Chevalier de la Légion d'Honneur, presented by Christine Lagarde, the president of the um, European Central Bank in Paris. What an honour, an honour for you and an honour to have a strong woman present it to you. But it was really a special moment, I felt. I looked around the room and I could see that it was filled with all your family, plus friends like Jeff Bezos and Larry Gagosian and uh, Natalia Vodianova. And there were so many of them, also um, Chloe Designer, Gabriella Hurst. What did that prestige award mean for you? It's now a year ago. Do you still feel strong about it? Well, first of all, when I received the letter, you know, I received the letter from the consulate that they wanted to give me the award. Of course, I was incredibly uh, flattered because 
you know, of all the honors that I've had, this is probably, well, maybe the National Women Award was the bigger one. But this this was really very big because, uh, because I'm from Europe. So, you know, it has a lot of meaning for me. And uh, and I wanted to I I wanted to do it in 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 Paris. Uh, so I thought it would be good to do it in Fashion Week because everybody would be there. And uh, and I wanted a woman. So I asked Christine if she would give it to me. I know her, and she immediately said yes. And it was a great honor that she was there. She was incredibly nervous because when it was over, she said, "Oh my God, I've had the worst day because it was." the beginning of, of all of this, the COVID and so on. But we didn't know it then, really, uh, to the extent that it would be. So it was very much uh, a turning point of, of a certain life. And yes, I had my family, my brother, my nieces, um, uh, the Elkans, you know, people, um, every, every, so many people from my life. And, and so it was very special Three days, Alexander, my son, gave me a dinner the next day at the Tour Eiffel. I had actually, if you can believe it, never gone to the Tour Eiffel. And the day before we went to, I took a few of my American friends to impress them. I took them to l'Elysee for lunch. Madame Macron gave a lunch for me. So it was, it was a very, very special few days, yes. And well, let's talk. It's not as though you've been idle in this long period when we're all of us um, not able really to do much. You have written a book, another book. Um, I know that when you moved to Paris in the 1980s, you founded Salvi. That's the right name, isn't it? A a French language publishing house. And you've since written, I think, about five books. Um, There is How to Wear a Dress, very important. And The Woman I Wanted to Be, also very important. And um, your latest the book that I've been looking at, published by Fiden, is called Own It, The Secret to Life. What inspired you to write this book? What, what does it really mean? Well, uh, first of all, they came to me and they say, you know, you, I have reached the, the age of my life that I like to give advice, that I like to use my voice, my experiences, my knowledge, uh, you know, all the things that I know, my connections, in order to help other women, you know, to be the women they want to be. And uh, so I give a lot of advice. I do a lot of mentorship. I do a lot of those things. As much, as much as it irritated me when my mother used to do that, I became 100 times worse than she was. So uh, two years ago, you know, when people ask me, what did you want to do when you were growing up in Belgium? And I say, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew the kind of woman I wanted to be. I wanted to be a woman in charge. Then people would say to me, who is the woman you designed for? Who is the DVF woman? And I would always say also, the woman in charge. So in charge was always kind of the umbrella over over my company, over me, over the way I, I do things. And two years ago, I decided to create because I do so much on International Women's Day and I do the debates and everything. So we did everything under the umbrella of In Charge. So originally they came to me, Fadon, and say, we would love you to do a book like a, some kind of a book of advice and aphorism and so on. We sell them very well and you would be a perfect candidate to do a book like that. So originally I said, okay, great. Originally it was going to be called In Charge. And in charge 
is actually sounds aggressive and especially towards men, but actually to be in charge is not an aggressive statement. It's actually a commitment to ourselves. It's owning who we are. We own our imperfection, they become our assets. We own our vulnerability, it turns into strength. So that's how I started. And then I, uh, and it was going to be in prose like any other book, and the first sentence was going to be, we cannot choose our parents, which is a kind of a provocative thing to think, and it makes you think, oh, yeah, sure, we cannot, you know, choose our parents. And it's the first thing, actually, that we have to own, where we landed, who are our parents, whether we like it or not, the plus, the indifferent, this is who we are. And then I decided that it was condescending. And then I took uh, my cahier, my big cahier, and I wrote all the words that really speak to me alphabetically. A, A had a page, B had a page, and I started to do like that. And the, the words that really mean something to that have a meaning, and also some words that I do not like, like, for example, anger or shame or blame or all of that. And that's when I decided to do it almost like an A to Z, like a little dictionary. And taking the words and either writing a short definition or an anecdote, and somehow all of it ended up always about owning it. And, and then I realized everything, it, it should be called own it. And then I, I, originally I had the secret of life, but then I thought that was way too pretentious. And then somebody said, no, it's a secret to life because it is a, to, a tool to our lives. So that's how it all happened. And then it was the pandemic word. And originally it was going to be fun, on the verge of frivolous. But then pandemic came and I was in this room, in this studio, and then late in the summer. And it became every word, everything that became so much deeper and more serious. So I really paid attention, very pay much paid attention to every single word and every single word that I wrote. And I have to tell you, when I had finished it, and even now when I open it, this whole process has been like an enormous therapy. I've never gone to therapy, but this was like an enormous therapy. And at the end, I had a lot of satisfaction because what I realized is that actually the reason I was able to live my life so fully, the ups, the downs, the this and that, is because somehow I always practice truth, whether it is to myself or to others. And therefore, there's a certain coherence in all of these words and in all of that. And so I think I'm proud about this book than any other book because it says everything I believe in, but more important, it's not me who said I never use the word you or yourself. I always use the word because I find that condescending. I always use the word we or ourselves. So it's very inclusive.
One thing I would say that I think is very impressive is that things are changing a lot in America, and there must have, you cannot but have seen the change between when you were starting to write the book and what has happened, and especially when it comes to post-Trump politics. And um, I'd like to ask you, do you think that um, Kamala Harris is really an inspiration to us all? Has she changed everything? Has she changed the way you as a woman look at politics? I wondered how you felt about it. Well, I've met Kamala. She's a wonderful woman. She's a strong woman. She is the daughter of an immigrant, an Indian woman, who, you know, had to convince her father that she could go to Delhi University. Then she went to Berkeley, you can imagine, at that time. That was my dream, to go to Berkeley. And then she met this very attractive Jamaican man and married, I mean, and and had two children. So um, she is a very interesting mix. And and unfortunately, you know, when when, uh, in America, vice presidents don't speak much, so... We, but I do have an enormous uh, respect for her. And yes, it means a lot. Yes. There's something else I want to ask um, about you, thinking of the way that Kamala Harris dressed herself, very symbolic in her choice of colour and what she wore. And thinking of you nearly 50 years ago, I think, since you first presented your symbolic silk jersey wrap dress. I believe since then you've sold 15 million dresses, pretty good going, and they're still very much in demand. But do you think when it comes to you yourself, you do so many things, but when it comes to fashion, does the wrap dress really define you? And if so, what is it about the design that brings power and independence to women? Okay, well, I've been thinking about that. Actually, listen, I didn't mean to be a designer. I didn't go to fashion school it was, I knew that I had to find a way to become the woman I wanted to be, to be independent. First, I worked for Albert Koski. That was my first thing with fashion. So it was the world of image. It was the models and the photographers and the magazine and the advertising agency. Then I met this man in Italy, Angelo Ferretti, and he told me, come, come to Como and see the back, you know, how we make fashion. And that's how I went to Como, and I I didn't think that that factory was going to have any importance in my life at all. But there I learned everything about the printing process, because he would print the silk for all the silk houses and the scarves for Ferragamo and people like that. So I learned about prints, how you buy illustration, how you put it in repeat. I worked with the colorist, and, and working in those factories in Italy then, it was very, it was craftsmen, you know, the colorist, their father was a colorist, the grandfather was a colorist. So I learned an incredible amount of things without even realizing that I was learning anything and even more that I would use any of that. And then the factory next, he, he was expanding and he needed more room. So he bought the building next door. In the building next door, they were making silk stockings. And of course, the pantyhose had just been invented, and so stockings were out of business. So he bought the the factory for the walls, but when he saw all these machines, he said, what can I do with these machines and not throw these machines away? And he called the yarn company, the Dupont, the Znia Viscosa, and all of these yarn companies, and experimented uh, the thicker yarn in those tubular knitting machines. 
And that's how he invented this jersey. Okay, so he invented, and I happened to be there at that time when he invented the jersey and started to make T-shirt, which was also something completely new. No women wore T-shirt until Brigitte Bardot wore the T-shirt, colorful T-shirts with Chose Saint-Tropez written on it. So I happened to be there at that time when he started to print on this jersey fabric. At that time, my boyfriend, Egon, was in New York, and my mother, for my birthday, gave me a ticket to go and visit him. So I went to New York to visit Egon, who was the coqueluche of New York. He was young, attractive, 21-year-old prince, and they didn't really want me to be there, his friends, but nevertheless, I was there. That's how I met Holston, Stephen Burroughs, Giorgio Santangelo, went to their showroom, they gave me clothes, and I, I had a whole other way of thinking about how the clothes were. So when I went back to the factory to go back to work with only one idea in mind, how can I go back to New York? I want to live there. All of a sudden, I thought after Giorgio Santangelo and Stephen Burroughs and looking at this factory there, I thought, ooh, why don't I make samples and maybe I could sell them in America? And that's how it all happened. I, stay, I would stay late with a pattern maker. We would work on the table. We would drape. I would try. And that's how it all happened. So it just shows that that was how I got into there. Other than that, I knew about fashion. I, I was very good friend with Yves Saint Laurent. I was very good friend with everybody. Everybody would give me clothes. So I, Kenzo, all of that. Then I started making little dresses, not even thinking, you know, and everybody say, what are those little dresses? It's only Diana Vreeland. When she saw those dresses, she said, this is genius. And I didn't really understand why she meant that. But the whole point is that for the brand that I created afterwards, it's always the woman before the fashion. So in other words, I always catered to women. I always, and because I was the kind of woman who was moving a lot and traveling and this and that, I like a very, I like a simplified life. So those little dresses were just I don't know, something that was practical and easy and proper and sexy at the same time. It had a color, it had a cuff. So, you know, then it became the the dress for the liberated woman. I mean, I didn't know any of this would happen to me. But in a way you did, because you've already used that phrase that means a lot to you, I'm sure. And it means a lot to a lot of people that you want to dress and behave as the woman you want to be. Yes. And it's so much in your clothes, but also your whole concept of women in charge. I mean, you have been involved in that. You and your husband, um, Barry Dillon, started the Diller von Furstenberg Family Foundation, which um, provides philanthropic um, support. And within that, you have established the DVF Awards to recognise women working to transform the lives of other women. I mean, I'm, I'm quoting so many things because there are so many things that you do. And although, of course, we all love your clothes and associate you with them, there are other things that you have done that have been very important. And I always love this phrase of yours, women often have the solutions. They need to be at every table and yet they still have to fight for equality, for the right to speak 
and the right to be heard. Those are very strong words. Tell us more about them. Listen, I was always a feminist, okay? Uh, I'm a feminist um, and with as many M's as you as you can as we can have. I I I traded being a princess when Gloria Steinem invented the word Ms. You know, for me to be a feminist was was very important. Do you see the woman I wanted to be? I was lucky to be that woman at age 28. I already when I separated from Megan at age 28, I already had two children. I had already separated. I already had my country house. I had everything already at 28. And so I was really lucky. And so with that, I realized I had a voice. It's just like, and, 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 and that voice could help others. And it's just the whole adventure that happened to me. And the only thing that I think I was is I was provocative because otherwise I would go around selling my clothes in every city in America. And, you know, people would say, oh, you know, so um, fashion uh, reporters would say, you know, the princess has come to sell her inexpensive little dresses. And I didn't like that narrative. So I realized very early on it was important to be provocative and to bring, you know, to bring issues at the table because it was much more who I was and, and what I cared about. And yes, the little dress was my freedom. It was my freedom. And you have to understand also, I was born um, from, my birth was a miracle. 18 months before I was born, my mother was in Auschwitz. She did the death, the death march. She went to Ravensbrück. She weighed 49 kilos. No, 29 kilos, 49 pounds, when she, when she was found. So she wasn't supposed to live. She wasn't supposed to have a child. And she used to tell me, God saved me so that I can give you life. By giving you life, you gave me my life back. You are my torch of freedom. So I was born with a torch of freedom in my hand. And it's not always easy for a little girl to take that heavy of a thing, but that's what I, that's what, that's what I was given, and therefore, that's what I used. I remember you um, telling me about phrase of your words, and I'm not sure that this came when you were in Brussels in Belgium or when you had gone to France or later on even. And the, these words were the courage to fight, the strength to survive, the leadership to inspire. Were those your mother's words? No, this is actually when I created the DVF Awards. Uh, Alexander, my son, <clears throat> said one day to me, you know, you help so many women with vital voices and everything. We should create, with a foundation, you should create a prize so that you can, we can give money and we could give support and we can highlight these extraordinary women. And so I said, okay, but, and, and, you know, he said, one day it'll be like the Nobel Prize. I said, but how can I start? It was very, a little overwhelming, you know, how do you all of a sudden one day decide to do that? And at that time, that year, uh, Tina Brown decided to do, she worked for my husband at the time, she was working for the Daily Beast. We decided to do an, the woman conference a women's conference, and she asked me to host it with her. And that, and that's when I said, oh, this is a great opportunity. So the second night of the conference, 
we hosted uh, the DVF Award. And that's how it started. And immediately, you know, like the, the first year, actually the big award, the, because you, you give award to women who are not, re, who do amazing work, but you do it to give, put them in the light, but then they don't have big names that, that would attract the press. So you always have to add the, add other women who are very well known, who get the lifetime because they get you the attention for the other women. So, and Ingrid Betancourt just happened, and so we gave her the first award. Uh, but so the mission statement, and so it's very much in thinking of my mother, and the mission statement of the DVF Award is to honor and support women who have had the courage to fight, the strength to survive, and the leadership to inspire. take this as a slightly uh, doubtful question, but you were just talking about Egon von Furstenberg. You say in your Instagram post, I remember seeing it, that your fairy tale started when you met your prince, but it didn't in the end last all that long, did it? And looking back, how do you feel about having had this extraordinary, glamorous, young marriage, a kind of dream stake? Oh, my God. I mean, Egon gave me the most wonderful children in the world. I mean, forever, every day and that I... I am alive, I will bless him because, and we met at, at university. We met when we were 18, we fell in love. We really had a passion. We got married, we had two kids. So, I mean, I can do nothing but honor Egon. And we remained very, very, very close friends until he died. And I was there with the children the moment he died. So um, there's no way I could possibly regret that. Aegon did bring me, I mean, he showed me the jet set life and the aristocracy, and he, he did show me a world I did not know before. And so I am, I have nothing but thankfulness toward him. Well, you are now very young at heart, but you have the title of Godmother of the Statue of Liberty, which certainly sounds very grand. And um, I know you currently serve on the board of the Statue of um, Liberty and the Ellis Island Foundation. And I believe you, you put in an enormous amount of money, you and your husband, $100 million um, for the new Statue of Liberty Museum. Um, tell us about that for people who don't know. So um, they asked me a few years ago to come on the board of the Statue of Liberty. I wasn't really interested and they insisted, they insisted. And finally, they did, funny enough, the man who was the president uh, came to me and showed me my mother's quote about the torch of freedom because it's in my book. And he said, you must do that for your mother. So that's how he got me. Then I started to read about the Statue of Liberty, which was really interesting because it was a gift from France. And I read about the Francmaçon and I read about Eiffel and I Bartholdi and I went to Colmar. I mean, it was a fascinating experience to find out about because by coming on the board, my role was I had to raise money. I did not give a hundred million, but I raised it. And, and uh, I came up with the idea of, you know, making stars and, and selling the stars. Anyway, but it was an extraordinary 
And, and I was joking. I said, okay, I will go to the board. I will raise the money, but I want to be the godmother of the Statue of Liberty. And so I asked for that title. And I did, I did. We opened two years ago and it's it's open and it's beautiful. And, and it has given me an incredible amount of knowledge about the friendship and what it meant to, for the French elite, for the French intellectuals to see that America, you know, the abolishment of slavery and, and, and the constitution and all of that, they looked up at America as a symbol of freedom. So I learned a lot about American history. I learned about, a lot about French history. So it, it was an amazing experience. And yes, I was successful to raise what they wanted me to do. So you um, created a performance theatre called The Little Island. And um, that seems a wonderful um, gift to the city of New York. And um, it was supposedly opening this year. And it's so long since I came, I don't know whether it's actually opened up that the idea that the Dilla von Furstenberg Family Foundation and your husband, of course, um, could be behind this new vision. Is it all happening already? The Little Island is actually opening in 10 days. And uh, it has really been my husband's project, mostly. I mean, there was this pier that needed to be fixed. And uh, Diane Taylor at the time, who is uh, the companion of Mayor Bloomberg, went to Barry and he said, you know, would you like to fix this pier? Because we had been very involved, as you may know, about the High Line and making the High Line a reality. And Barry said... uh, what if we did something else than just appear? And then they, he called a few architects, and then they had the dream of creating this mini island as a park. Um, and then, and then, but it's really his project. And as it was growing, he decided to have three open air theaters in, on that little island. And the funny thing is, us in the family, me, my son, my daughter, we thought the park was a great idea. But why bother in doing the theaters and the production and all of that? And it turns out like usually Barry will again, once again, appear like a visionary because after not being able to go in theaters because it's all closed in, New York City will have three open air theater starting in June. I want to ask you something now. Extraordinary career and so many ideas that you're going on with this great book, a lot of things. But what about the future of your fashion house? I mean, you've got five grandchildren, I think, and I, I've met with Talita, who seemed to be following your fashion route. She had part, was part of your collection, wasn't she, under the DVF label? And I think it was TVF for her name. But I think she's currently at the university studying, isn't she? Do you hope she's going to come out from there and say... I want to join you, I want to do the clothes. What, what are you expecting for the future? Well, uh, Talita is actually 22 today. She's graduating this uh, September because she has to do a summer school. And, uh, and then it's up to her what she wants to do. She did study the future of fashion. And in, she, first she was at Georgetown and she studied politics. And the last two years she moved to NYU and she studied, you know, the luxury business and the the future of fashion. And she was actually lucky to study that right in the middle of the pandemic, because if she had studied that three years ago, it would have been completely obsolete. So 
it's uh, it's been very interesting. Listen, she's been close to very close to me. I'm very close to all my children and grandchildren. But Talita has worked with me when she was nine. I took her on a fashion show that I did in Piti. So she always was interested. She's always been part of it. She's my biggest critic. So I assume she will absolutely be involved. So you really think there'll be a DVF legacy? I certainly hope so. But I don't know about you from your point of view. Would you rather be known for your so many different things supporting womanhood that you've talked about today? Maybe you'd rather be known for that than for a mere dress? But I mean, isn't that all the same? I mean, it's 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 a woman. I mean, I would like. I mean, what would I like to be remembered? I would like to be remembered for a woman who who became who she wanted to be and help others to do so. You know, and that can include dressing, feeling confident. It's all about in the DVF brand. The the real purpose is woman first. So it's all one. And, and, you know, and every, you know, what, what is it that you leave behind? You leave, you know, your genetic heritage with your family. And that goes on. All the things you've taught them, the examples you've given them, that goes on. I happen to have had a brand. The brand has already lived so long. And in vintage stores, it doesn't seem to die. I mean, it's always a bestseller in, in vintage shops. And sometimes you can go and it's already had three lives, three generations. So it's all part of one. And I am right now, it's very interesting because of COVID, because like a lot of other people, I had to close most of my stores. I had to go back to the core. It was very, it was an opportunity to go back to the core and to create a vault, so to speak, so that whatever they want to do with the brand after, there is a vault, there is a bank of colors, there is a huge library of prints, there's a huge archive of silhouettes, and there is a lot of words and a lot of examples and a lot of... Somehow, I mean, my own life has been like a a tool and a sample and an experiment and and and, and a success and, and sometimes it's failure, but I've always been very open about this because I feel like if I am open about the vulnerability, if I'm open about the um, the failures, if I'm open the fact that, you know, facing difficult things, that helps others. And and at the end, listen, I wasn't I wasn't a compassionate person to start with, but as you grow into life, you become more and you and, and, and when the minute you realize that your voice can help. You're just your voice. That you know, I I do. I try to make a miracle every day. I spend every morning. The first two emails I do don't benefit me. It seems like nothing, but you can change people's lives by just connecting them, and it it's great for others, but it gives me pleasure. I don't need to ask this question because I know the answer which is, are you the woman you wanted to be? I think you are. I am. And now as an older woman, I'm 74 years old. So I really, you know, I have less and less time ahead of me. I, I am so glad that I lived fully. 
I am so, and that's why I tell every, you know, I surround myself with young people and I just say, I, I repeat them what my mother told me, go for it. Fear is not an option. Go for it. You only regret the things you don't do. What a wonderful note on which to finish. I think I shall follow all your rules and ideas and things that come out on every page of your new book. And um, thank you so much for opening your heart and your mind and your thoughts to us. I know that everyone is going to love listening to it. Thank you so much, Susie. You are the best. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Goodbye. Bye. Diane von Furstenburg, I was fascinated to hear your secret to life, which you've opened up to the world in your new book, telling us all to own it. Your ongoing dynamism and energy shows us how much can be achieved by force of will and belief in yourself. But above all, the fashion designer turned art supporter and fundraiser understands the importance of legacy. She describes it by saying, what we leave behind that others can use and a last word of the DVF mantra on the subject of packing. Since life is a journey, when we know how to pack, we know how to live. Pack lightly, live lightly, she said. Join me next time when I shall be talking to Raffaello Napoleoni, the chief executive of Pity Imagine Trade Shows, where we shall be talking about the success of Italian fashion and a hundredth edition of the men's trade show Pity Uomo. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Do subscribe and follow. Just head to iTunes to rate and review. I do love to hear your comments. Creative Conversations with Susie Menkes is produced by Natasha Cowan, music by Jörg Zuber, graphics by Paul Wallace, and edited by Tim Thornton. To find my articles, visit susiemenkes.com and susiemenkes on Instagram. If you enjoyed the podcast, then please do rate, review, subscribe and tell your friends. You can find me on all the usual channels.